0: I want to welcome everyone, whether you're joining us in person or maybe you're watching online, honored to have you with us. And also want to take a moment and look into the camera as I do every single week. It's one of my favorite things that I get to do and say a big hello to all the men and women joining us in our correctional ministry. We love you guys. We love having you a part of our church. Come on, Defiance, help me welcome our church family today. It's awesome. Well, today we are starting a brand new series called Controversial Jesus. And I have been planning and I've been preparing and I've been praying. Come on, somebody. Now, honestly, for several months leading up to this series, I'm excited about it. But honestly, some of the inspiration and even content came from a couple pastors that I'm highly connected to. First, Pastor Josh Howerton, who pastors a church in Dallas, Texas. He's a good friend of mine. In fact, uh, I talk to him and a few other pastors almost weekly. And so I'm grateful for his friendship and just his influence in my life. And then another pastor by the name of Pastor John Tyson, who pastors a church in New York City. And Pastor John Tyson is probably one of my favorite Bible teachers in America. And I was first introduced to him a few years ago uh, when a buddy of mine uh, told me about this book called The Intentional Father. And I read this book and I was Man, I was radically inspired and challenged in so many ways as a dad, so much so that I actually joined a group of fathers that's being led by Pastor John Tyson, where we are Being intentional about discipling our sons and helping them become men, and so uh, dads out there, I would highly recommend for you to pick up the Intentional Father book, especially if you have a son that's uh, a teenager. It's not limited to just sons, but it's definitely directed at that. And then at the same time, we actually have a small group called the Intentional Father that's based off of that book. Would highly recommend for you to jump into that. But but really any book that Pastor John has written or any teaching that he has done, I would just highly recommend it because it's just so, so good. But some of the content in this series is coming from them. But I wanted to start things out today as I was reminded of of something that I experienced as a kid. I grew up in a small town just outside of Wichita, Kansas, and something that we used to do when we were kids was go to this little amusement park called Joyland. Now, Joyland was just a small amusement park. It was nothing like Cedar Point or Six Flags or even Worlds of Fun that's in Kansas City. It was a much smaller amusement park, but it still had some cool rides. And in fact, I think for the longest time, it had the oldest wooden roller coaster in the nation, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. The thing was falling apart, but they were still sending kids down it, and we had a blast. But I'll never forget, one of the things that we did was In the middle of this amusement park, they had an artist who would draw a caricature of people who were willing to to give him five bucks. And if you're not sure what a caricature is, it's a drawing that exaggerates some physical features of a person and then kind of minimizes or downplays other physical features. Usually this is done in a more like humorous way. And so I didn't bring any caricatures of me when I was a kid, because I just would not do that to myself to have you laugh at, but I thought we'd have some fun today and look at some caricatures of some famous people and see if you can guess who they are. But you got to play along with me. You ready? All right. All right. Let's take a look at this first one and see if you can figure it out. Come on. Who is that? Come on. Let me tell you something, brother. And notice on this caricature that the the artist has exaggerated his muscles and his neck, but he's kind of minimized his tiny little head, right? Let's take a look at the next one. Who's this? Come on, Morgan Freeman. Come exaggerating his teeth and nose, his facial features. Let's take a look at the next one see if you can. Come on, Albert Einstein, the, the famous nose and mustache. Let me see if you can get this next one. You probably can't. Uh, first service, we literally had some elderly women in the front row going, "Oh, that's Snoop Dogg." And I was like, "I was not expecting you to get that." Exaggerating his his neck there, and then let's see if you can get this last one. <laughs> president, former president Donald Trump, exaggerating or maybe not exaggerating his mouth. I'll let you be the judge. On that. Now, now, those are caricatures where the artist exaggerates some characteristics uh, and then minimizes, downplays, or even eliminates other characteristics for a desired effect. Now, here's a point in why we just did that because I think as Christians that we can fall into the trap of doing the exact same thing with Jesus that there are aspects of Jesus that we exaggerate and we blow up really, really big, saying, man, this is a big part of being a Christian. This is a huge part of following Jesus, while at the same time we kind of minimize or downplay or eliminate other aspects of Jesus. Now, a couple reasons why I think we, we can, can to do this is, is first is, I mean, we love comfort. I mean, our default uh, position is usually to take the path of least resistance, right? We prefer ease over difficulty, and so a lot of us just prefer a more comfortable Christianity. Let let me exaggerate the things I like, like maybe God's love and forgiveness. Who doesn't love those things, right? Let me exaggerate those things and then maybe kind of minimize or downplay or even eliminate other things that might be more difficult or that I don't like. The late Tim Keller uh, made this statement. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Anne Lamont, you didn't amen that one at all. Anne Lamont said this. She said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> right? We laugh, but at the same time, we're saying, ouch, because there's a lot of truth to those two statements, isn't there? Another reason why I think we we contend to to do this is is to make our faith more palatable to the world and the people around us. I'll never forget uh, several years ago, I had just become a a, a new Christian and I was meeting some of my buddies, I think we were in St. Louis, at this Christian organization, we were going to go play some basketball. I recently have retired as a basketball player because I never really was a basketball player, I just want you to know, I was a wrestler and we don't know how to play basketball, but we do know how to foul, come on somebody, we do know how to put you on your butt and I'll take that charge, it was worth it, right? But I was meeting some friends that played some basketball at this Christian organization, and I'll never forget, I was checking in at the front desk, and they had their kind of their statement of faith and beliefs plastered all, all around the front desk. I was just, I always a new believer. Like before, when I wasn't a Christian, I could kind of care less about that stuff, but as a new believer, I'm read, now, I, now I care about it. I'm reading what they believe, and I'll never forget, I asked the guy behind the desk, he was in his kind of early 50s, I said, hey man, what does this mean to you? And he looked at me and he goes, I mean, I think we all kind of just believe this, all believe the same thing, don't we? And I was like, no, no, I'm actually, no, I don't think we all just believe the the same thing. He's like, well, I mean, we all just, you know, we just love and get along. We're all just kind of. We're on it together, right, man? I was like, this is really awkward right now, this conversation. Cool, let's just go play basketball. But but I think that's a perfect example of a trap that we could fall into is just kind of caricaturizing, if you will, uh, aspects of Jesus. Man, let's just all love each other. Let's just all focus on this thing. And maybe the harder stuff, the things that causes maybe some, some tension or some discomfort, let's minimize downplay, maybe even eliminate those things all together. That's what it means to, to caricature Jesus as opposed to presenting Jesus as the character of the living God. Can I just remind us today, church, that Jesus is our Lord. He's not our mascot. That when we come to Jesus, man, every knee will bow. Man, we've bowed our knee to Jesus and we've surrendered our lives and our wills to him as Lord. And so what we're doing in this series is we're leaning into some things that might be a little more controversial uh, that maybe we would rather minimize them. We'd rather downplay them. We'd, We'd rather just eliminate them all together. But the goal is, as we go on this journey together, is to discover what does the Bible say about this topic Not how do we feel about this, this topic, not what's our opinion on the matter. No, what does the truth of God's word say about this? Because how many of us know God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? And so just a few of the topics we're going to be discussing in the next few weeks we're going to be talking about jesus and gender jesus and sexuality just to name a couple and the reason why this series is so important is because our culture and our world has not been silent on these issues Therefore, it would be foolish for the church to be silent on them too. And maybe you've heard me say this before, but if the church won't disciple people, how many of us know the world, world will disciple people? And so my responsibility as a pastor is to teach truth to declare the whole counsel of God when it's in season and when it's out of season so that all of us can become resilient disciples who remain steadfast while we live in a world that's trying to mold and shape us into its patterns. Because our goal is not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead to be molded and shaped into the character and image of Jesus. Can I get an amen today? this is our goal and so i just want to kind of lay a foundation today for us to build on over the next few weeks and as we tackle some controversial topics and so the title of the message today is jesus and controversial compassion jesus and controversial compassion now something maybe a lot of us have probably noticed uh, which is this shift in culture I mean, I feel like it's just been this gradual shift over these past few decades. This this slow, just getting away from truth and biblical values. But maybe you've noticed, like I have, that that following Jesus faithfully and publicly has become more and more controversial. Like there's been a change and there's been a shift in, in a few different areas. First, there's been a change in how we even understand ourselves and where we, we, we draw our identity from. Like religious values have, have, have kind of, they're being pushed aside, and, and what culture is telling people is, is to embrace your feelings, embrace your, your, your cravings, and, and follow those impulses. That's how you can understand your identity. That's how you can discover who you really are. And there's been this shift and this change in how we understand ourselves. There's also been a change in how we understand others to how we understand each other. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, we we lived very local lives. Like we didn't have, the internet wasn't a thing back when I was growing up. We didn't have cell phones. Like pagers were a big deal when they finally came on the scene, right? And I don't know if you've seen the meme on, on social media, uh, but I love it. It's this picture of like, like 15 bicycles in the front yard of this house. And the caption of the meme says, this is how we used to be able to find out where our friends were at, which is so true. We just lived very localized. Like what was happening in our world was just what was happening around us. But because of technology, which is a beautiful thing, what we see happening in, in our world is that we can become more connected to and get to know better. Maybe a complete stranger, Someone we can feel more connected to somebody we've never met in person than we are those people that we're around every single day. And so the way we're even understanding each other and connecting with others has changed there's, there's been a change in authority in, in our world, and uh, even in the United States. I mean, our country was founded on biblical principles. How many of us know that to be true? Like, did you know the Bible used to be used as a textbook in our schools? I mean, we're a little ways from where we started, right? We've drifted along. We used to, when I was a kid, we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance every day at school, but now because it says that we God in it and it's offensive, we've removed that. And so there's been this shift, church. There's been this change that's slowly been happening. There's also been a, a change and a shift in how Christianity is viewed. I'm 44 years old. I know you didn't think so. You thought I was much younger, younger than that. But I'm 44 years old, and even in my lifetime, there has been a shift and a change in how Christianity is viewed. Like when I was, when I was a young boy, Christianity was respected. I mean, employers wanted to hire Christians. It was, a, it was a respected thing when I was growing up as a boy. But as I got a little older, it kind of shifted and changed where Christianity was viewed as being weird kind of weird what you believe. It's kind of different. Then it kind of shifted and changed even more to Christianity's kind of dumb. You're dumb for what you believe. You're dumb that you, you hold those viewpoints and have those beliefs to now what we're seeing in our day-to-day that we're seeing that Christianity is viewed as being almost dangerous. It's dangerous to be a Christian. So we've seen this, this, this shift and this change happen just in the past a few decades or so where it was respected, it was weird, it was dumb, and now it's dangerous. And so how did did we get from where we were to where we are now? Well, I want to show us a, a chart that came out just a few months ago that the Wall Street Journal did that was really, I mean, it was really shocking to people. This was a survey that was done on the change on people's values over the past 25 years from 1998 to 2023 and notice the top one on on the left patriotism went from 70% in 1998 to only 38% in 2023 religion went from 62% in 1998 to 39% in 2023 And in the bottom left, having children, having a family went from 59% of people saying this is important to only 30%, almost half uh, said it was important in 2023. Community involvement went from 47% in 1998 to 27% in 2023. And there was only one value that increased the past 25 years, and it was how important is having a lot of money. And that went from 31% to 43%. Now, now what we're seeing in our, our culture and the world today is what we could call the rise of the religion of self. Like what happens when we stop believing in a power greater than ourselves and an authority higher than ourselves is, is gradually, secular, the culture secularizes. Like when we stop believing in something that's greater than ourselves, what happens is self becomes the greatest thing that there is. This is why four of those values in that study that would call a person to live for something greater than themselves, they all dropped. And the one value that gives people the ability to self-fulfill and self-express, which is money, is the only value that increased. In other words, what we're seeing is more and more people are buying into what I would call a lie, that that the way to be happy in life is to pursue self-fulfillment and self-expression. More and more people are believing this is how we, we are happy in life. This is how we are fulfilled in life. That the only way to truly be happy is not to live for something greater than yourself That requires things like self-control or self-sacrifice or denying yourself, picking up your cross and following me, someone once said. But the way to be happy isn't to live for something greater than yourself outside of yourself, but the way to be happy is to embrace your desires, to follow your feelings, to give in to your cravings, and then express and fulfill them however you want, now, not only are we seeing the, the rise in the religion of self and culture today, which, by the way, you, you still with me, church? I didn't lose anybody, did I? If, you can, if, if I did, just jump back on the train. We're going to still go, keep going. Not only do we see the, the rise in the religion of self happen, but we're also seeing uh, what we could call the privatization of faith. Now, I was trying to find a better example of this, but I just couldn't. And so I just want to put a disclaimer out there. This is not a political ploy. Uh, We'll do that in later weeks of controversial Jesus. This was just the best uh, example that I could find of the privatization of faith. And, And here it is. And that is one major presidential candidate was asked during a debate what he thought about abortion, what his stance was on abortion. And this was his response. He said, Personally, as a Catholic, I'm opposed to abortion, but publicly, I think women have the right to choose. Now, now, now everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but how many of us you, so if you're a Catholic, you're also entitled to the Pope's opinion, too. And what we see happen in this situation is that the only way that faith is allowed in a secular society is if it's kept private, and it sounds a little bit like this. Hey, man, you, you can believe whatever you want to believe. You, you can do whatever you want to do. Just don't try to impose your beliefs onto any of us. Otherwise, we're going to have problems. And I just want us to know today that we should not be surprised. You know why? Because the Bible literally tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Let's take a look at it. The Bible says, do not be i on, going to say it with me, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. God literally gave us this promise in his word. And so the reality is that I want us to grab a hold of today is that as followers of Jesus, we should expect controversy. In fact, if we don't have any controversy in our lives, the question would be what parts of the gospel have we left out? What parts of the gospel have we minimized, downplayed, or even eliminated? The Bible also says this in James chapter 4, verse 4. Take a look at it. It says, don't you realize, church, that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I'll say it again for the people in the back. If you want to be friends of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Now, what this Bible verse is is referring to when it it uses the word world there is that it's speaking to the customs, the beliefs and the ideals that the world has. That's opposite of what God says. Right. If you're going to be if you're going to make friends with the ideals of this world and this culture, if you're going to follow what they say to be, then you're going to become an enemy because that's opposite of what God says. Now, how many of us know the Bible tells us that we should be as followers of Jesus in the world, but not of the world? And so the question that I ask myself, maybe you're asking yourself this morning, too. And that is, what's the right response to this shifting culture that's happening all around us? Like, how do we respond the right way to the tension and pressures that we're all feeling and facing in our lives today? Like, how do we stand firm in truth and yet love people well at the same time? Well, I would suggest that we respond like Jesus with this controversial compassion. And and to kind of get a better understanding of what I mean, let's take a look at one of many examples that Jesus gives to us in the Bible. It's found in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We we could title this story, uh, Jesus, a Pharisee and a prostitute almost reminds me of three guys walking to a bar, but that's, that's not it. Verse 36, just trying to keep it light. You guys look a little tense. A couple of you haven't even taken off your jackets. So you're like, I don't, I don't know. I might leave at any moment. This guy keeps it up. <laughs> Verse 36, let's take a look at it. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. We know his name's Simon. We'll see that later in the story. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Pause there. I want to know it does not matter what time in history you are in, This is awkward. This is is an awkward moment. Jesus is sitting down at this pastor's lunch. He's having lunch with all these other religious leaders, these pastors. And this woman comes in and sits behind him. Like, awkward. Do I look back behind me? What is she doing? Then she begins weeping and pouring perfume on his feet. Then she takes her hair, starts wiping Jesus' feet, and then she begins kissing His feet. Like, if you're at this pastor's lunch and this woman came in, like all the other pastors and religious leaders had to be thinking, man, how do you, Jesus, how do you know this woman? First and foremost, like, how do you even know her? Why is she doing that to you? And even a better question is, why are you letting her? Why are you allowing her to do this? In other words, this would be controversial. And then we see what happens in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, man, he said to himself, if, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner, which gives us this, this understanding that when we see this religious man in his mind, check this out, holiness was defined by distancing himself from sin. That's how he viewed holiness. The farther away I can get from sin, the more, holier, uh, the more holy I am. In other words, the holier you were, the farther away you were from people like this. Now, what this woman was doing was, was completely inappropriate. I mean, to be interacting with men in this way, especially touching Jesus the way she was touching him, this was completely inappropriate. And so according to the Pharisee, Simon, this situation was sinful. And it was that this woman was a sinner and a lawbreaker. And she was. And now and now he's looking at Jesus and this this prophet, this man, he's supposed to be a holy teacher. And he's he's not distancing himself from her and said he's not only not distancing himself, he's letting her do this. He's not stopping her or telling her to get away. All that's true. It's a controversial situation. But take a look at how Jesus responds in verse 44 of Luke chapter 7. Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Wow, what a question. Seriously, what a question. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman, Simon? In other words, what do you see, Simon, when you look at her? Do you see her behavior? Do you see her clothes? Do you see her lifestyle? Do you see how she's different from you? What do you see, Simon, when you look at this woman? Because I promise you, Simon did not see this woman the way Jesus saw this woman. What about us, church? When we look at someone who doesn't believe the way we believe, doesn't live the way we live, what do we see when we we look at them? Do we see they have a different color hair than we do? That They dress different? They live? What do we see when we look at the world around us? It? It's a powerful question Jesus asked this Pharisee. Simon, what do you see? And then Jesus goes on and say, I came into your house. And you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I injured has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, as a result of that, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Other other, uh, versions of the Bible, maybe you've heard that. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. I want you to know when Jesus is making this statement, he's pointing to the very bad theology of this religious guy. He's actually not talking about the quantity or the magnitude of this woman's sin. He's not comparing the two. We read it like that. He's actually addressing this misbelief that this this, uh, Pharisee had. Like He's thinking to himself... I I do all this right. I do that right. I follow Jesus here. I follow Jesus there. Therefore, I just need a little bit of God's forgiveness. But this woman, this immoral woman, all that she has done, man, she's needed a lot of God's forgiveness. And what Jesus is pointing out is actually the truth is all of us have needed a huge amount of God's grace and forgiveness in our lives. He's actually pointing out to Simon, you've actually needed just as much forgiveness as this woman. The only difference is you don't realize it. You don't understand. You think she's better, so, so much far worse off than you, and you're so much better off. But the tr- truth is you're in the same boat. It's a great lesson for us, church, because we, we can fall in that same trap, can't we? To look at the people around us and say, oh, I, I don't sin like you, therefore I'm better off. Or I don't struggle with that like you do, so I'm, I'm, I'm so much better off than you. I just need a little of God's forgiveness. And God said, no, 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 you need all of it. And if you realize this, if you realize how much you've been forgiven, you know what you end up doing? You, when you, you receive a lot of God's forgiveness, man, you love a lot of people with it because you realize, I... I I go by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. Amen? This is what he's saying. So then we see verse 48. Then Jesus said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus saw this woman. He knew her sin, but it didn't keep him from extending grace to her. Now, for for all of us that might be in the room today and we're like, man, right on, pastor. Can't stand those religious people. Jesus just wants us to be our authentic selves. Sexually liberated woman coming in, disrupting these religious Pharisees, doing her thing, and Jesus is just cool with it. Anybody here thinking like that? Stand up if you are. Just <laughs> but we can get there, like man. We love the grace of God. Anybody besides me love the grace of God? Man, his grace is sufficient, his mercy is new every morning. But if we fall too much on that side, let me just let me just bring us back a little bit. Remember that this woman was in tears because she hated her life and she wanted a new one. How many of us know sin will take us places we didn't want to go and keep us longer than we wanted to stay? That sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time, and the Bible doesn't tell us. But my my theory is that there was a time when this woman uh, it went off in her sin, and she was probably having the time of her life. I don't know. I just think back of my my life, and when I was involved in the party scene and drugs and all that whole thing, there was a time, and I loved it. P- people go, man, I can't believe you did drugs. I go, why? They were fun. <laughs> they were. For a for a, for a brief moment. In fact, the, the, the Bible, you know what the Bible says? Sin is pleasurable for a season. So so I, I like when I when I counsel people on using drugs, like don't go into it thinking you're not gonna have any fun. Or it doesn't feel good. People do drugs because it feels good. But it only lasts for a little bit. Sin is only pleasurable for a season. And I just had the thought, man, one day this woman woke up and she looked at her life and she was miserable. And she was hurting and she was lonely and she was broken. And she ran to the only place that she could find life. She ran to Jesus. And Jesus calls her a sinner and yet forgives her at the same time. He doesn't condone her behavior. She's trying to find a way out of her life of sin. She's trying to find a new hope. And Jesus doesn't say, Hey, no big, no big deal, girl. No big deal, boo-boo. You do your thing. He didn't say that to her. He says, he says, I'll forgive you, but leave your lifestyle of sin. Jesus had this controversial compassion towards this woman. And the truth is, the beautiful thing about this story is, Jesus has had that same controversial compassion with every single one of us. I don't know about you, but there's things that I've done that I never want you to know. Like, I don't, I don't deserve God's love. I didn't earn his forgiveness. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't deserve any of that. And yet, in this controversial compassion, he gave it to me anyways. He's given it to all of us. And so, so how did Jesus do it? I, I know a lot of us might, well, he's the, he's the savior of the world. That's, I mean, he's God in the flesh. So must be nice, right? It'd be easy for him to do. But the truth is he laid down his deity to come to the earth. So how did, how did he do it? How, how do we have that same compassion that Jesus had where he stood for truth yet loved people well at the same time? I love this verse. I want us to read it again. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Bible tells us that the word became flesh, talking about Jesus here, and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Let me say it this way. Unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. Unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. Now, depending on our personality types and maybe our spiritual giftings, we're going to discover that we naturally either lean more towards grace or some of us lean more towards truth. Now, if you're someone who leans a little bit more towards truth, maybe, maybe you have more of a, a type A personality, like you're justice orientated and, and you love it when the bad guys get caught and punished in Jesus name. Like you just love, you love telling people when they're wrong, where you at? You love truth and you wanna tell everyone about it. But what happens is if you're not careful, you can end up condemning people whom God loves. But for those of us who might find ourselves on the other side, who maybe lean a little bit more towards grace, you might come across a little more caring, nurturing. Like you see broken people everywhere and your heart just goes out, to them, if they could just, I just love them that God could get a hold of their hearts, they could change them around, and you get you get teary-eyed during every testimony, like you just weep. Like the person giving the testimony of what God did in their life isn't crying, but you are like, God's you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> God, you're different, I'm too, with he's grace. I just I love it. But what happens is if you're not careful, you can end up getting taken advantage of and when it's time to speak the truth, you'll stay silent to preserve the relationship, and in, in the effort to preserve the relationship, you'll actually hurt the other person by withholding truth from them. Now, what happens is that all the grace people look at the truth people and I'm like, "You jerks, y'all are mean. Nobody wants to follow that Jesus." And all the all the truth people look at the grace people and say, "Y'all are cowards. You you're weak." You won't stand for truth. But the reality is we need both. It's not either or, it's both. We need truth and we need grace. Unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. This, this is the tension that God has called us as followers of Jesus to live in. Unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. I mean, there's a tension to live in this place. It's easier to pick a side. It's not effective, but it's easier to pick a side, right? Because un- un- if we just choose unconditional grace, but we leave out uncompromising truth, you know what we end up doing? We end up hurting the people. We end up hurting the people because we're not, we're not telling them the truth. And how many of us know it's the truth that sets us free? If I didn't have the truth, I wouldn't be set free. But at the same time, right, and we live in this tension, if I'm all truth and no grace, I push people, I hurt people, and I push them farther away from God than closer to. It's it's this tension, church, of living in this, in the between of unconditional grace, but uncompromising truth. This This is the church that God has called us to be, that we're gonna be a church that that has unconditional grace, but uncompromising truth. You, you just need to know, I'm gonna preach the truth of God's word. I'm not gonna give you my opinion. I'm not gonna give you my feelings on the matter. What is the truth of God's word? I, I'm unapologetic. I'm gonna preach the truth of God's word. But I wanna do it in a loving, grace-filled way. Because all of us are on a journey. And so my job is to present truth, and then your job is to go out, grapple with it. Because how many of us know, we can either follow the word, the word of God or the world, but we can't do both. I'm either gonna listen to what the world says or what the word of God says, but I can't do both. So I'm gonna continue to produce, produce truth, and you decide, right? So I want to close today with because there's a great there was a great story um, of a Christian demonstrating grace and truth. That actually happened back in 2013. You may or may not remember this, but in in 2013, people found out that Chick-fil-A had donated to some charities who were upholding the biblical definition of marriage, and people lost their minds over it. In fact, people started protesting and coming against Chick-fil-A, going to stores and, and protesting. Well, then people on the other side started protesting the protesters, and tried to encouraging everybody, go buy Chick-fil-A, eat as much chicken as you can. And as a result, Chick-fil-A ended up having their highest sales day in the history of the organization. And all of this happened with like in a week, in like five days, all of this went down. But what a lot of people don't know is that the owner of Chick-fil-A, uh, a guy by the name of Dan Cathy, Dan Cathy, he didn't affirm or join into the protest but instead, he privately behind the scenes reached out to one of the organizers who, were, who was protesting against Chick-fil-A, a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer, who was an LGBT rights activist, a very outspoken one. And what happened was Shane Windemeyer and Dan Cathy began these private, personal, vulnerable conversations behind the scenes. And they ended up developing a very close friendship. In fact, I want to show you a a picture of Dan Cathy hosting Shane Windermeyer in his private suite at the Chick-fil-A Bowl that year. Pretty cool. After after all this happened, Shane Windermeyer, once again, the gay rights activist, wrote an article in the Huffington Post entitled, Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. And I want us to to listen to to what he said. I'll put on the screens for you to read along with me as well. It says, it's not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our own families. Dan, Kathy, and I would together try to do better than each of us had experienced before. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for Campus Pride to to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns. He sought to first understand not to be understood. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness, grace. Grace. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage, truth, unconditional grace, uncompromising truth. Doesn't it kind of sound like the controversial compassion of Jesus? And this, this is how God is calling us as his followers to respond to the world around us with unconditional grace, but uncompromising truth. And I just had this thought too, though, but before we can give that, that grace and that truth away, how many of us know we have to first receive it for ourselves and we can't be like the Pharisee who thinks I just needed a little bit of God's forgiveness. I just need a little bit of God's grace. No, I needed all of it. I needed a lot of God's forgiveness. And as I've received a lot of his grace, as I've received a lot of his love and mercy in my life, now I can extend it to the world around me. Amen? This is the journey God's called us to go on. And I'm excited for what God is gonna do in all of our hearts and in his church as we go on this journey together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for how you love us and how you believe in us. We thank you for your unconditional grace, but your uncompromising.